Welcome to Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. I'm Brian Sussman, and coming up in this special Independence Day edition. While the progressive left in America is quick to always talk trash about the United States, I have to ask this question. What would the world really look like without the United States of America? In this important episode, you'll hear amazing stories about some of the men and women who are to lose their fortunes and even lives to see this country become the land of the free and the home of the brave. And you'll be reminded of the hallmarks of our unique system of government and how the United States not only helps save the world from tyranny, but how our economic and spiritual prosperity has been a blessing to the entire world. Details on this podcast can be found at briansussman.com on my blog. Also, you can reach out to me via email through briansussman.com. I'll get to more contact information a little bit later in this podcast. But what I want to do right off the bat is just dive into American exceptionalism. I'm sick of the left constantly trashing this country and reminding us of our faults. You know, this isn't heaven. We do have our faults, and we always will have our faults, because this country is run by people who are imperfect. Even the good guys are imperfect, and they will always fail us at some level. But you listen to the left, they want heaven on earth. Guess what? There will be no heaven on earth. I've got news for you. But if you want a great country that has some heavenly people and has done some heaven-like things around this planet, look no further than the United States of America. Now, I want to go back to our founding. And I want to talk about patriotic role models. I wrote about this in my book, Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. This is a 2012 book. It was a bestseller at the time. Towards the end of the book, I talk about some of the wonderful people who helped found this country. You know, the stories of the patriots, particularly the accounts of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Do you realize all those who inscribed their names in this document knew that by doing so, they and their families would become targets of the British crown. In fact, there is a book from 1884. It's written by B.J. Lossing. It's entitled Signers of the Declaration of Independence. Again, this is 1884, and I talk about this in the afterword of my book, Eco-Tyranny. Here's what B.J. Lossing said. The signing of that instrument, the Declaration of Independence, The signing of that instrument was a solemn act and required great firmness and patriotism in those who committed to it. It was treason against the home government, yet perfect allegiance to the law of right. Now listen to this next line. It subjected those who signed it to the danger of death, yet it entitled them to the profound reverence of a disenthralled people. So it's true. I often imagine the conversations that must have taken place between the signers, all men, and their wives prior to the vote to accept the declaration on July 4th, 1776. All of these men but one were married. Benjamin Franklin's wife had passed away many many years earlier. And the family unit was very secure in those days. And the bonds of marriage were exceptionally strong. I believe there were 55 exchanges between husband and wife that must have sounded something like this. Husband, my vote and subsequent signature will guarantee vigorous persecution. 
the British and their allies might well come after you and our children. We will be despised by the crown. Wife. But if we don't proclaim our independence, the children will grow up forever subservient to the king. Husband. We talk much of being ready to give all for this new land, our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. The battles ahead will not be easy. Wife. Neither will liberty. Sign it. I believe those conversations took place. There are three signers whose lives have always been of particular interest to me. The first is Richard Stockton. Stockton's grandparents came to New York about 1660 and eventually settled near Princeton, New Jersey, where Richard would eventually be born in 1730. Richard Stockton. He became a highly regarded attorney and in 1766 embarked for London, where his legal skills were honored by the king. He returned home in 1768, two years later, and was chosen a member of the Royal Executive Council of New Jersey and eventually was placed on the bench of the New Jersey Supreme Court. While it would have been natural for Stockton to remain a loyal and wealthy, I might add, subject of the king, Stockton longed for liberty, and he began to espouse the cause of the colonial patriots. The Provincial Congress of New Jersey elected him a delegate to the Continental Congress in 1776, where he became deeply involved in the debate for independence. And then on July 4th, he voted for the Declaration. And with the others, he signed that document on August 2nd. So his signature is on the Declaration of Independence. Richard Stockton. Soon after returning to his estate in Princeton after signing the document, word came that the British Army was coming through the area in pursuit of General Washington and his small band of soldiers. Aware that he... Mr. Stockton, was on the British hit list, Stockton and his wife Annis hastily gathered their children and fled to a friend's farm some 30 miles away. However, a neighbor, faithful to the crown, discovered Stockton's hideaway. A group of loyalists to the king stormed the farm and captured Stockton and presented him to the royal authorities. Stockton was jailed, treated extremely poorly, and nearly died of starvation. In time, Congress was able to take up his cause, and they arranged a prisoner exchange to free him from his captors. Upon release, Stockton was now in terrible health. He was able to secure transportation back to his estate in Princeton and was shocked to find the home destroyed, his livestock slaughtered, his horses gone. His wife and children were there, but they were literally in tatters. Stockton never recovered. He suffered from chronic illness, depression, and eventually died in 1781 at the age of 51. Annis and the children were cared for by family and friends. Richard Stockton, you see his signature on the Declaration, but this is the backstory. This is the backstory to freedom. Now let me tell you about Francis Lewis. Francis Lewis was born in Wales in 1713. He was orphaned at the age of five and raised by relatives. After a college education in London, he became a business apprentice and saved his money. At the age of 21, he set sail for New York 
and established an importing business. In 1756, during the French and Indian War, Lewis was a special aide to the British forces, supplying them with uniforms and other critical supplies. He was on business when a bloody battle broke out against the French aggressors in Fort Oswego. Lewis was taken prisoner and sent to France aboard a ship, cruelly housed in a wooden box. Upon his release at the close of the war, Lewis was rewarded for his service to the Crown with 5,000 acres in New York. Again, one might think, well, such a man would forever be loyal to Great Britain. This was not the case for Lewis. He saw how the edicts from England were strangling freedom in the colonies, and according to B.J. Lossing, Lewis was dearly holding on to his, quote, Republican views. Lewis's wife, Elizabeth, was also a devout patriot, shared those Republican views and fervently supported her husband when he was elected a delegate to the General Congress in 1775 and then signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia the following year. And once the Declaration was signed, the British put a price upon the head of Francis Lewis. He signed the Declaration, and just like Stockton, he's going back home. He was able to reach his home on Long Island, but who was there to greet him? ground troops, and a warship. The ground troops and the warship had completely destroyed his property. But let's back up just a little bit. Elizabeth Lewis, his wife. What a patriot. What a fiery woman. What a brave woman. A lot of people have criticized me for that conversation that I proposed in my book, Eco Charity, between the husband and the wife, saying that never would have happened. Women were so subservient back then to their husbands, they were practically owned by them. Well, I disagree. I disagree. And this story illustrates my point. Because when you look at Francis Lewis's wife, Elizabeth, this was a brave woman. Before her husband was able to get home, she stood on the balcony, basically facing off against a British ship. She knew the ship had her in her sights. She knew the ship had her in their sights, I should say, because they were firing cannonballs as close to her as possible. She literally stood on a balcony as cannonballs were crashing into the walls of her house next to her. There was a servant down below who pleaded with her, run, mistress, run. Lewis calmly replied, another shot is not likely to strike the same spot and she would not budge. Finally, troops entered the home. They destroyed everything. And she was taken to New York as a prisoner and thrown into prison. And she was not allowed a bed or a change of clothing and given little to eat. A former servant, a former family African servant, I might add, discovered her location and loved her so much that he was able to smuggle some small articles of clothing and some food to her. He also reported her whereabouts and condition to Congress. Demands were made for better treatment for her, but the British were determined to make an example out of Mrs. Lewis because of her prominence and her wealth, and especially because they hated her husband. Finally, General Washington was able to broker a prisoner exchange and Elizabeth was able to join her husband. However, it was plain to everyone that because of her gross mistreatment, she was broken and slowly sinking into the grave. 
Francis Lewis asked for a leave of absence from Congress to devote his whole time to his wife, and she died in 1779. Grief-stricken, Lewis retired from Congress to live with his sons. He died in 1802 at the age of 89. He was buried in a simple unmarked grave in the yard of Trinity Church. This is the spirit of 76, my friends. These are the men and women who gave us everything we have today. And when the left trashes America, I say shame. For your kind doesn't have the spine of those who founded this great nation. Let me give you a third patriot. A third patriot who selflessly endured great sacrifice for the sake of freedom. He was a humble man. He's also a signer, John Hart. You see, now when you look at that declaration, you see these names. You have the story behind the names, behind the signatures. John Hart was a farmer. He was known as Honest John Hart in New Jersey. Fellow signer Benjamin Rush described him as a plain, honest, well-meaning Jersey farmer with little education, but good sense and virtue. Honest John served with the distinction as Justice of Peace, which was the highest position in his county's government. And in, 19, in 1765, he turned against the British authorities because of the imposition of the Stamp Act. He thought this was very unfair. The Stamp Act was a direct tax imposed on the colonies by the British Parliament, and the act was created to pay for British troops stationed in North America. It mandated that virtually every printed material imaginable be produced with a stamped parchment produced in London carrying an embossed revenue stamp. It was a tax. And like previous taxes, the stamp tax had to be paid in valid British currency, not in colonial paper money. And the tax enraged people like John Hart. So John Hart is elected to the First Continental Congress and he signs the Declaration of independence two years later. Immediately, Hart's life was noted with a series of tragic losses. Shortly after signing the Declaration, he was elected to the New Jersey State Assembly, chosen as Speaker. Knowing he was busy leading the state legislature, royal mercenaries raided his farm, destroyed his livestock, and terrorized his wife, Deborah. Hart immediately went home after they had torn apart his farm, and his wife was doing very, very poorly. In fact, she was sinking slowly into death. Hart was at his wife's side as she passed away on October 8, 1776. She was terrorized by the British mercenaries, terrorized to the point of eventual death. He was at his home. His wife had just died. His grieving was interrupted by British troops now searching for him. He fled to the forest. His two youngest children ran to the home of a relative. Hart spent that entire winter on the run, sleeping in caves, eating very little. Once it became clear the British had vacated the area, Hart was able to sneak back home. <laughs> his life was a shambles. His wife was gone. He was trying to raise his kids. Though he was re-elected as Speaker of the Assembly, most accounts state that Honest John's heart was broken, and he too soon became very ill. Then he died May 11, 1779. Some say he died of a broken heart. 
Richard and Anna Stockton, Francis and Elizabeth Lewis, John and Deborah Hart. They took literally the words of the Declaration of Independence, which states, And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Let's talk about the United States of America. I love this country. I love this country. My dad loved this country. My grandfathers loved this country. My grandfather on my dad's side immigrated to this country in the early 1900s. My great-grandparents on my mother's side immigrated here in the 1800s. I was instilled with a love for this country. And I will tell you something. We have been a blessing to the entire world. Oh, some are so quick to say, yes, but we were a slave nation. Well, yes, there was slavery in the United States of America. But can I tell you and remind you, in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln had become convinced that freeing the slaves was critical to the Union. In an effort to win the Civil War, fleeing the South's, freeing the South slaves was critical. And through the Emancipation Proclamation, which took place the following year and applied only to slaves in the Confederate states, Lincoln made it clear in his historic Gettysburg Address that there was going to be a new birth of freedom. And guess what? There was a new birth of freedom. And for those on the left who are quick to just throw stones at the United States of America incessantly, can I remind those people that slavery still exists in the world today? We don't have it here in the United States. But estimates are anywhere from 30 to 45 million people are slaves in this world. Recently, we've been hearing about the slavery in North Korea. Oh, yes, there's an alarmingly high rate of slavery in North Korea. But guess what? Slavery is also alarmingly high in in Haiti and Pakistan and India and China and Southeast Asia. There are people who are enslaved to be laborers their entire life. Backbreaking, mind-numbing labor. Others are involved in sex trafficking. Some slaves in certain parts of the world, especially the Arab world and, and the Africa and on the African continent, many slaves are young women who are whose parents are paid a dowry so the young woman be, can become some old guy's bride against their will. So it's happening in Africa. It's happening in India. It's happening in Asia. We ended it here in the 1800s. I would just like to point that out because we are a great nation. Now, as long as we're talking about this great nation, can I remind you what this world might look like were it not for the United States of America? Can we start with World War I? Maybe that's too far back in history for you. Then let's go to World War II. The end of World War II, I believe May 8th, we celebrated 74 years. Is that correct? America was indispensable to the Allies winning World War II. Without us, the world might be speaking German right now. More than 60 million people perished, some 50 million of them in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, and China. It was a bloody war. And it would have been even worse had we, the United States of America, not stepped in. 
it's, it's amazing because World War II started largely because the Soviet Union had assured Hitler that those two powers could partner up to divide Poland. And so with his eastern rear thus secure, Hitler would then be free to fight a one-front war in the West against European democracies. The Soviet Union, if you'll remember, only entered the war after it was double-crossed by Hitler in 1941. Before the surprise German invasion, the Soviets had been supplying Germany with fuel and food and metals to help it bomb Great Britain into submission. Russia had been Nazi Germany's most useful ally. But then something happened. They were double-crossed. And now they were, the, they were Nazi Germany's enemy. And once the United States entered the war after the attack on Pearl Harbor, that axis of evil was largely doomed. You know, when World War II started, America was isolationist. Keep that in mind. We didn't want to get any more wars. After World War I, that was it. We were done. One and done. The Soviet Union was a collaborationist. After the fall of France in June 1940, Great Britain, until 1941, alone faced down the huge Nazi Germany empire that ranged from the Arctic Circle to the Saharan Desert. Prime Minister Winston Churchill had steadfast leadership. And they built out a superb air force. And they had the Royal Navy. And they thought even though we're outnumbered, isolated, and bombed, we're going to be unconquerable. They were up against a horrible, horrible enemy and that of Nazi Germany. Would they have been able to withstand? I don't think so. I think most historians would agree. But once the United States entered the war, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the axis, the evil axis, the axis of evil, if you will, was doomed. We mobilized 12 million soldiers in World War II. Everyone participated. We produced... Well, there was the Willow Run plan in Michigan. The greatest generation working at the Willow Run plan in Michigan turned out a B-24 heavy bomber every hour. Single shipyards in America could mass produce an ocean-going Liberty merchant ship from scratch in a week. In just four years, the United States would produce more airplanes than all of the major war powers combined. Everybody was in. Thank God. Germany, Japan, Italy, the Soviet Union could not build a successful four-engine heavy bomber, but we could. In fact, we produced 34,000 of them, B-17s, B-24s, B-29s. By 1944, the U.S. Navy had become the largest in history, 6,000 ships. America sent troops to the Pacific, North Africa, Italy, Western Europe, simultaneous bombing campaigns against Germany and Japan. And at the same time, we supplied the Soviet Union with 400,000 trucks, 2,000 locomotives, 11,000 rail cars, billions of dollars worth of planes, tanks, and on and on and on. If the measure of wartime success is defined by quickly defeating and humiliating enemies at the least cost in blood and treasure that America in World War II staged a brilliant war. Yes, many died. Yes, it cost us a lot. But we did things quickly. It could have been much worse. Of the major powers, only America's homeland was not systematically bombed. Think of that. It was never invaded. There were 400,000 fatalities, a terrible cost of victory. 
but we lost the United, we lost the smallest percentage of our population of any major power. We didn't win World War II alone, but without the United States, the war against Axis fascism certainly would have been lost. Certainly would have been lost. And can I say this? America's dominance as a superpower has encouraged democracy and has prevented war. You know, we have a lot to take for granted about the way the world looks today. Oftentimes we do, right? We look around and we don't really think about this. But we were the genesis for widespread freedom. And by the way, also unprecedented global prosperity. The world America made when it assumed global leadership after World War II has been outstanding. But what would this world look like if we declined as a great power? You know, the left says, well, we, we, need, we could manage it. We could manage things. We'd get along with our partners. We could manage things. Take the issue of democracy. For several decades, the balance of power in the world has favored democratic governments. In a genuinely post-American world, the balance would obviously shift towards greater power autocracies. China and Russia would become very prominent, scary prominent. If they gain relative influence in the future, because America has declined, we will see fewer democratic transitions and more autocrats hanging on to power. What about the long peace that is held among the great powers of this world for the last six decades? All these great powers aren't the greatest countries, but I'm just saying, if you look over the last 60 years, we haven't been going at it with China and Russia. You know what I'm saying? So what about this long peace that's been held together? You know, people imagine that American predominance will be replaced by some kind of multipolar harmony. That's what the left would want you to believe. But multipolar harmonies or multipolar systems have historically (laughs) hardly been harmonious, hardly been stable, hardly been peaceful. They're run amok with dictators and tyrannists. You know, war among the great powers was a common occurrence in the long periods of multipolarity in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Multipolarity. I'm sorry that I'm having trouble with that word. It's not one I use often. But for the sake of this podcast, it seems to work as long as I can pronounce it properly. In the 19th century, there were two, you know, 1800s, there were two stretches of great peace, about four decades each, punctuated, however, by major wars among the great powers, and then culminating later in World War I, which, by the way, World War I, the most destructive and deadly war mankind had known up to that point. But again, we stepped in and helped save the day. And then there was World War II, and we stepped in and saved the day. This, this present order of superpowers is only going to last as long as those who favor it and benefit from it retain the will and capacity to defend it. And that's what really worries me about the United States right now. We have a generation that has been, they have gone to the school of YouTube. They've gone to the school of liberal pablum. And I don't think they really understand what is at stake. Oh, yes, there are some who do. You might be listening to this podcast right now. There are some who do. Uh, 
because you've raised them yourself as moms and dads. But if and when America and its power declines, the institutions and norms that America has supported will decline too. Or they may collapse altogether as we transition into another kind of world order or disorder or chaos, if you will. And sadly, I hope it doesn't come to this because I pray that we remain strong and remain vigilant and remain dominant. We may discover if we do slip away and disorder becomes the norm, that only then and only then we will discover the United States was essential to keeping this present world order, if you will, together, and that the alternative to American power was not peace and harmony, but as I suggested a moment ago, chaos and total disorder. And then, if I might, for just a moment, there's Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a polarizing figure for sure. The left hates him. The media is completely against him. But what has he done for the United States and the world? Remember ISIS? Back in the day, before Trump, ISIS managed to carve out a caliphate that included wide swaths of of territory in Iraq and Syria. And within that wide swath, which ranged from Kirkuk to Aleppo, people were getting their heads chopped off. Women were being raped, mutilated, murdered. Gays were getting tossed off of buildings. And then in 2017, Trump promised to extinguish ISIS from the face of the earth. That was his quote. And guess what? Even PolitiFact, while rating President Trump's claim that ISIS had lost close to 100% of their territory, even political PolitiFact which is an otherwise liberal operation, had to admit that that is, quote, mostly true. They went from 90,000 square kilometers in January 2015 to 6,000 square kilometers in January 2018, and there's even less now, thanks to Donald Trump, who allowed our military to take the gloves off and fight these people. I don't know if it'll ever earn him a Nobel Peace Prize. After is, after all, it is Donald Trump and the left hates him. But you know, if he stays the course, President Trump will end up potentially saving millions of lives from the likes of Islamic extremism. And who knows, may save the world in the process because if ISIS and these extremists had their way, they would take over the world. And then there's the economy. In general... As the U.S. economy goes, so goes the world. If we're roaring along, the rest of the world is roaring along as well. If we tank, they tank too. So here's Donald Trump releasing U.S. manufacturers from these burdensome, idiotic environmental regulations, cutting corporate tax rates, implementing business-friendly policies, which has allowed for some great economic gains. And when we're winning, the rest of the world is experiencing some of that winning as well. Yes, there have been the implementation of fair trade policies that could stifle some trade in the short run, but they too will lead to better wages and a more robust manufacturing infrastructure the world over. And that means more financially sound middle class people here in the United States and around the rest of the world as well. And then there's one thing I also have to mention, as long as we're talking about American exceptionalism and how we have been a great 
force of positivity for the world. There is Christianity. Do you remember this? 2018, Pastor Andrew Brunson returned to the United States after two years in a Turkish prison. Remember, he, he was in the Oval Office, and there was Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina joining the president and welcome, welcoming Brunson home. And Burr took heat for this. He said the pastor's work in Turkey was to, quote, spread the word of Jesus Christ because it's absolutely critical and it's a foundational thing about this country, the United States. Senator Burr was ripped apart for that. We're not a Christian nation, the left said. Well, I understand we're not a Christian nation, but we were founded on wonderful Christian principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We were founded on a rule of law that is very consistent with much of the law of Moses, quite frankly. So he set social media aflame. But can I tell you something? We have always been a force of spiritual good in the world. You know, just prior to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, there was a, a, a wild Christian revival that broke out in the United States of America. People were, quote-unquote, getting saved left, right, and center. Harvard University was established as a Bible college and a training center for missionaries to go abroad to spread the word of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting. You had the, well, the early American missionaries— they left this land for places like India, and they went to Africa, and they went to the far reaches of the world to convert the world to Jesus Christ. And Protestant missionaries to this day are found all over the world, teaching people about the truth, the way, truth, and life, talking about the salvation that comes through knowing Jesus Christ, and making people better, and helping civilize nations in the process as well. They established schools and hospitals around the world, these Christian missionaries did. They often saw, you know, besides spreading the gospel, they wanted to teach people math and science and how to read and, and bring hospital care to places that never had seen a doctor. So this is what has been done in the United States, a base of operations for peace, a base of operations for prosperity, a base of operations for religious truth, if you will. And that's why I'm stoked on America. I love this country. And I know because you're listening to this podcast and now you've gone 35 minutes in, you love this country as well. And I appreciate your listenership. Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom comes out every Thursday via SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. It's also at my website, briansussman.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Brian Sussman Show, Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. And if you want to email me, just go to my website, briansussman.com. Thanks for listening. Brian Sussman, Hidden Headlines, Special Edition, signing off. <laughs>